welcome to In the Weeds with Nicole Asquith, exploring the way culture shapes our relationship to the natural world. One beast, and one only, howls in the woods by night. The wolf is carnivore incarnate, and he's as cunning as he is ferocious. Once he's had a taste of flesh, then nothing else will do. Thus begins Angela Carter's The Company of Wolves. There's a whole history stuffed into her version of Little Red Riding Hood, and a surprising twist to the end. We'll get back to that later. In the European fairy tale tradition, which is alive and well in popular culture today, the wolf is indeed carnivore incarnate. In my neck of the woods, wolves were killed off by Europeans over a hundred years ago, but lately, coyotes have been expanding their territory in the absence of wolves. I've been struck by the fear that these slighter carnivores inspire. People may know that cars, or even vending machines, pose a bigger threat to them or their children than coyotes do. But this fear is not a rational thing. This fear has roots. And that's what led me to wolves. Today we'll focus on fictional wolves. I'll be talking to fairy tale expert Maria Tatar, professor of Germanic languages and literatures and of folklore and mythology at Harvard University. I also spoke with Alexander Pluskowski, associate professor of archaeology at the University of Reading and author of Wolves and Wilderness in the Middle Ages. Unfortunately, our interview didn't record well, but I'll be referencing things I learned from him throughout the episode. Let's start with the most famous of wolf fairy tales. Little Red Riding Hood entered the literary tradition with the Mother Goose stories published by Charles Perrault in 1697, during the reign of Louis XIV. What do we have? A beloved little girl on her way to her grandmother's who encounters danger as she enters the wood. The wolf and the woods. They're nearly inseparable in our imagination. Oh, sure. I mean, it's a place of, you know, verdant greenery and all of that, but also darkness and mystery. And there's a certain lure to that, the, the double face of the forest. You never know. It's a place of exploration. Uh, you want to be adventurous, but it is a place where you might meet a monster. That's Maria Tatar. I asked her how she came to study fairy tales. I mean, seriously, what a cool job. I started out in German literature, and one of the things that I discovered is that the the Brothers Grimm were not on our 20-page single-spaced reading list. And I just sort of accepted that, uh, didn't think much about it, wondered why the stories that I'd grown up with as a child weren't considered legitimate. And then when I had children, I started reading stories to them, and you know, being kind of opportunistic, I thought, oh, I'll do some German, German things. Uh, now, I didn't read to them in German, but why not the Brothers Grimm? And I just got an incredible shock when I started reading stories like The Juniper Tree, where a stepmother decapitates her, her son and then chops him up and puts him in a stew. And I found myself wildly editing it to my, at that time, I think they were about three and six. This was around the time, um, I guess maybe a decade after Bettelheim had published his Uses of Enchantment, which was a kind of groundbreaking work on fairy tales because it said to parents, the message was, it's all right. The violence in these stories is not a bad thing. 
That is, it helps children work through a lot of their fears, anxieties, and uh, and gives them an opportunity also to work through them in symbolic form, but also maybe to talk about them. Because as we know, when you go to the movies, the first thing you want to do is talk about the story. Or you read a novel and you want to share it. You want to share your excitement about it. So that's pretty much uh, my journey into the dark forest of fairy tales. The dark forest of fairy tales. Nice phrase, right? And apt. There's a way in which the forest is the realm that brings these stories to life. Just as Alice goes through the looking glass and Lucy goes into the wardrobe, and thus into the forest of Narnia, the woods are a kind of predicate, a kind of portal into what fairy tales do. Bruno Bettelheim, the author of The Uses of Enchantment that Maria Tatara mentions, which, by the way, is a very interesting book, especially for parents, calls the woods the place in which inner darkness is confronted and worked through, where uncertainty is resolved about who one is and where one begins to understand who one wants to be. As Maria points out, the way we think of the forest, the way we imagine it, may change. Now things are changing because we're, we have a different environmental consciousness. So it's not as if the woods are a completely stable entity and their symbolic power, I think, shifts over, not just over the centuries and from one place to another, but in the course of a, a decade or so. But the symbolic importance of the woods and the association of woods and wolves persists. I learned some interesting things from my conversation with Alex Pluskowski. First of all, wolves are very adaptable and can live in many different kinds of landscape. So the fact that we think of wolves in the woods isn't strictly speaking for ecological reasons. But there are historical connections which may help us understand why the two are so closely bound in our imagination. In England, William the Conqueror, you know, the Norman king who invaded England and claimed the throne in 1066, introduced a practice already in use on the continent of royal hunting domains. The legal term was foresta, which is where we get the word forest. In these forests or wilderness areas, only the king and his retinue were legally allowed to hunt. Wolves, who might prey on deer, the favored object of the hunt, were actively pursued and killed in these royal forests but the preponderance of deer may also have attracted wolves, thus reinforcing an association between wolves and the forest. By the same token, woodland in the Middle Ages, or more generally wilderness areas, were thought of as places of exile, where fleeing soldiers and criminals took refuge. In his book, Pluskowski writes that criminals were executed, displayed, and buried in the vicinity of administrative boundaries, often as far away from the inhabited area as possible. Thus, another association fell into place between wolves and criminals. In English law, the term wolf's head refers to an outlaw. Think Robin Hood. But the woods are never just one thing. When Little Red Riding Hood enters the forest, she is protected by the presence of woodcutters. As she was going through the wood, she met with a wolf who had a very great mind to eat her up, but he dared not because of some woodcutters working nearby in the forest. That's an important detail. In pre-modern Europe, woods were managed. Trees were often coppiced, periodically cut down to the ground and allowed to regrow so that they would provide timber and firewood. They were used for livestock as well. 
For a lovely modern-day look at a managed forest replete with pigs foraging for acorns, there is a recent book I recommend called The Wood by John Lewis Stemple. But let's get back to the girl in the red cape. So let's start with Little Red Riding Hood herself. Actually, no, let me take that back. Tell us a little bit, what do we know? You said that there are some sort of hints of early versions of the story around the 12th century. Is that right? What What do we know about where it might come from? That's right. You know, but we're always searching for origins. And the fact of the matter is um, that story is told everywhere because it's about a girl and a monster. So you may have a medieval manuscript that mentions a little girl and uh, some wolf pups, but it's hardly more than that. Um, it sort of hints that, you know, there may be a larger story there. Uh, but in any case, there's, there's really no telling. We, can, we know who first wrote it down in its full version, and that's Charles Perrault at the end of the 17th century. And he gives us a, a girl who's devoured by the wolf, and that's the end of the story. And it becomes a cautionary tale to young women about not just the monsters in the forest, but also the beasts who don't have furry pelts. That is the sexual predators, that mm. the humans who are living among you. Right. It's fascinating to me that that story is still told to French children with that ending. Mm. Uh, and that, you know, the sort of sanitized uh, version in the Grimm's collection. And I say sanitized, I put sanitized in scare quotes because maybe that's just how the story circulated in, in Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is with the with the um, rescue of the girl by the hunter who, who opens up the belly of the wolf and brings out both Granny and Little Red Riding Hood. Um, there's an even earlier version, though, which a French folklorist recorded in the 18th century about a girl who rescues herself. Uh, she tells the wolf, she realizes she's in danger once the wolf invites her into bed, and she realizes, you know, the wolf is not granny. So what does she do? She tells the wolf that she has to get out and go to the bathroom. And the wolf says, oh, you know, just do it in bed. That's okay. And she says, no, no, no. He puts a rope around her leg, lets her run out. She unties the rope and runs back home. So no woodsman, and uh, she manages to come back home safely. Hmm. Interesting. So even in the Behold version, of course, she gets eaten at the end. But the first line of the story is, um, there was once a little girl of the village the most, um, I don't know how it gets translated in English, but in French it's éveillé, the most like woken up, most lively, you know, that one has ever seen. So I thought it's interesting Mm -hmm. that she's not, I feel like she's never depicted as only a victim. You know, there's a sense in which she has agency, you know, and and spark (laughs) to her. Yes, and she's adorable, and she loves flowers. Uh, what has she done? Speaking of Bettelheim, I think I think he blamed her for um, being seduced by beauty, um, and, uh, right? And and desire for for flowers and all of that. So, yes, uh, and of course, you know, today we rewrite her as a spunky little girl who can deal with the wolf on her own. Uh, I mean, there's 
if you've seen the film Heart Candy, you know that, um, you know, Little Red Riding Hood is afraid of nothing and she's going to get the better of the wolf predator, the sexual, I said online sexual predator. And she sure does with a vengeance. Uh, it's a frightening film to watch. Hmm. I haven't seen that one yet. She's, because she becomes much more ferocious than mm. any wolf ever was. The wolf as predator thus elides into the wolf as sexual predator. This is an old theme that goes back to the Middle Ages at least. A modern expression of this is the wolf whistle, which was popularized through cartoons in the 1930s. Google Little Red Walking Hood. So what about the wolf? Um, you, In your notes to the your annotated collection of fairy tales, you mentioned that uh, and you, you you choose the Grimm version, Grimm Brothers version, but there are, you mentioned some others. You mentioned that it's significant that the wolf is a wolf, at least in that version. That it's not a magical figure. It's not a witch or some kind of um, sort of creation of magic. So, do you have any thoughts on on that? Um, and- yeah, that's a, a good question. That is, it's a beast. It's a it lives in the in the forest. It's the out there. It's not. It's the non-human. And if you think about it, many of these stories may have started out as cautionary tales about predators and 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 prey. You know, watch out. Um, and as I said, you know, we sort of turn them into metaphorical tales. But somehow, in the Western world, at least, and in say a Chinese Little Red Riding Hood, the creature is a, a tiger, a t- an anti-tiger. The wolf, though, I think has come to represent, uh, and I always think in this context of Ed Young, who dedicated his illustrations of um, a Little Red Riding Hood story to all the wolves in the world, because they've given their good name. Um, they've let us use their good name as a tangible symbol uh, for our darkness. So the wolf has just come to be loaded uh, in symbolic terms with our fears and also our darkness. That is our role as predators in the in the world. In there, because you know the tables have really turned. Uh, we used to be afraid of wolves. Now wolves are uh, have good reason. If they're smart, they're afraid of humans in a way. So. Um, so yeah, the story the story has really changed, and and I think these days we understand that there's a, a huge downside to what we call civilization, and as a result, many of our stories about werewolves, for example, now end with the werewolf and his girlfriend running off into the forest and living happily ever after there hmm. in nature right. and getting away from. The city, right. the, the city with its human, human predators. This part of our conversation raised two questions for me. Wolf attacks on humans in North America are nearly unheard of. But, I wondered, were they more common in the past and in Europe? Based on the research I did, the short answer is yes. According to the French historian Jean-Marc Morisseau, there were nearly 7,600 fatal attacks documented in France from 1200 to 1920. On average, that would be about 10 fatal attacks a year. But in fact, there were spates of attacks. 
According to Morisot, there were 262 people killed by wolves in France between 1678 and 1683, with a rash of killings around Versailles. To put this in context, Little Red Riding Hood was published just a few years later in 1697. Crazy. Contrast this with only two verified fatal attacks on people in North America. There are many theories for this disparity. One that intrigues me is that wolves are very adaptable. They're smart. Which means that they may have learned to respond differently to different circumstances. Pluskowski wonders, for example, how the introduction of guns may have changed wolf behavior. I had another question. Oh yeah, why is it that we project our predatory nature onto the wolf? Why do we identify with the wolf? That's a more complex question. Maybe the werewolf can help us answer it. <laughs> so I didn't realize this is something I discovered in reading for our interview as well, that, that there, there was a real belief for a while that werewolves actually existed, and it was sort of people were persecuted as werewolves just as people were persecuted for being witches. Um, am I right that it was there was a sort of surgence, particularly in the Renaissance, of trials against werewolves and the idea that men could be transformed into werewolves? Sure, yeah, and and I think it runs up through through Enlightenment times, basically. Although even in the Enlightenment, the irrational is always breaking through, and people didn't suddenly stop being superstitious uh, because um, it was time for the Enlightenment. So it seems to me that we we have so many different types of these, these hybrid creatures, uh, centaurs. Uh, I think of centaurs, which are usually male. Mermaids, of course, which are usually female, uh, they're beautiful, they're seductive, they sing the celestial music, and yet they're also dangerous. You listen to them at your peril, a little bit like the, the sirens of classical antiquity. So, yes, the, the werewolf seems to be, I'm trying to think if there are any female werewolves in fiction or film, and I can't think of one off, I'm, I'm sure there's one somewhere, but you know, they became probably affiliated with some of the uh, beggars, uh, vagrants, outsiders, uh, people, the homeless, who became a little bit like furry beasts. I know a little bit more about werewolves now, thanks to my talk with Pluskowski. And again, I apologize that I'm not able to let you listen to our interview. There are three periods of werewolf lore that seem mostly unrelated. There are pre-Christian stories of men turning into wolves in ancient Greece and Rome and in pagan Europe, especially in Scandinavia. There's the werewolf of the 15th and 16th century witch trials that Maria Tatar and I talk about. This period starts not with a werewolf, but with a woman who was executed for riding a wolf in 15th century Switzerland. The most famous werewolf trial of this period was of the German farmer Peter Stump, who, after being tortured on the rack, confessed to practicing black magic that allowed him to transform into a, quote, greedy, devouring wolf. Peter Stump and his daughter, with whom he was accused of having an incestuous relationship, and his mistress were all executed in brutal fashion. Stump's body was torn to pieces and finally burned on a pyre, a testament to the fear he must have inspired. Thirdly, there's the werewolf that Hollywood invented in the 20th century, the one you're probably the most familiar with. And then there are innumerable stories in which a wolf represents some aspect of the human, from a symbol of the powerful hunter in early pre-Christian mythology 
to a fallen figure of the aristocracy in the Middle Ages, to Jacob in Twilight. I guess he is a werewolf, the old-fashioned kind that looks like a wolf. I think of wolves as being clever, too, in fairy tales, although also to be outwitted in some situations, like in the Three Little Pigs, right? Yeah, isn't that fascinating? We think of them as cunning. And part of that, I have to feel, is that we project onto them our own most sinister qualities, uh, that we are cunning and tricky and smart. Uh, I mean, certainly they're smart in the way that animals are. They have instincts. And then, you know, what we haven't mentioned is the fact that they travel in packs. Right. So they're seen as sort of social animals, even though, you know, they may not actually be all that, all that social. Uh, Who knows how much altruism there is in those packs. Hold that thought, because in my next episode, we'll be talking about actual wolves. But uh, I think that that's another reason why, why we have uh, invested them with so much symbolic energy. Right. And they're related to dogs, which doesn't come up specifically in the stories, but, you know, that's kind of an interesting link as well. If you think that the domesticated version of the wolf is the animal with which humans have had the closest relationship, arguably. Um, Oh, that's, uh, yeah, fascinating. Yeah, because they they are close to the animals that we keep in the household. So the fact that they're sort of kindred spirits in a way, you've got the a good domesticated dog, and then the feral wolf in the woods. I, I think that's part of the of the whole mystery. Yeah, so they're almost like these liminal creatures in a way, right? That point sure. out that boundary yeah. between the the domesticated and the and the wild, which which we have in ourselves as well. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting. Do you have, there are a lot of um, modern retellings of um, Little Red Riding Hood. Do you have any favorites? I think I love um, Angela Carter's Company of Mm. Wolves, best of all. Although I have to say, I've rarely met a fairy tale I didn't like. (laughs) So that, you know, I I enjoy almost every version. But there's something so uh, dark and fascinating. and, And then... But, and I, I should give a spoiler alert here, but the fact that there's finally a reconciliation at the end, uh, because suddenly, you know, it's something that sweetly and soundly she sleeps between the paws of the wolf, sweetly and soundly. That is that there's there's kind of safety and security in the reconciliation between man and beast. Mm. So it's really, a, a, it's a frightening tale and it, it's full of ferocity, but it holds out this utopian hope of making peace with the animals uh, that share the planet with us. Yeah. No, I, I, I would have... I would have said the same thing. I mean, I'm sure you know many more versions than I do, but I love Angela Carter's version. She has this way of kind of digging into the guts of the story and really yeah. taking it for all it's worth. Absolutely. I I, it, I think at one point she used a different metaphor. I like digging into the guts of the story because she definitely does that. And she also talks about lifting up the hood, 
mm. of the fairy tale. Uh, it's kind of like Little Red Riding Hood, too, but you're lifting up the hood of the car, seeing what makes it work, what makes it tick, yeah. and why, you know, why is it so powerful? What makes it so powerful and uh, gives it the kind of velocity it, it, it has? If you haven't read Angela Carter's version, go find it. But in the meantime, I'll read you the end. Every wolf in the world now howled, a prothalamium outside the window, as she freely gave the kiss she owed him. What big teeth you have! She saw how his jaw began to slaver, and the room was full of the clamor of the forest Liebestod. But the wise child never flinched, even when he answered, All the better to eat you with. The girl burst out laughing. She knew she was nobody's meat. She laughed at him full in the face. She ripped off his shirt for him and flung it into the fire, in the fiery wake of her own discarded clothing. The flames danced like dead souls on Walpurgsnacht, and the old bones under the bed set up a terrible clattering, but she did not pay them any heed. Carnivore incarnate, only immaculate flesh appeases him. She will lay his fearful head on her lap, and she will pick out the lice from his pelt, and perhaps she will put the lice into her mouth and eat them, as he will bid her, as she would do in a savage marriage ceremony. The blizzard will die down. The blizzard died down, leaving the mountains as randomly covered with snow as if a blind woman had thrown a sheet over them, the upper branches of the forest pines limed, creaking, swollen with the fall. Snow light, moonlight, a confusion of paw prints. All silent, all still. Midnight and the clock strikes. It is Christmas Day, the werewolf's birthday. The door of the solstice stands wide open. Let them all sink through. See, sweet and sound she sleeps in Granny's bed between the paws of the tender wolf. Thank you to Zephyr and Aleawa for lending us their howls at the beginning of this program. Next time I'll be talking to Maggie Howell, director of the Wolf Conservation Center in South Salem, New York, about what it's like to work with actual wolves. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or simply tell a friend. Thanks. Thanks.